3: who's here to discuss the practical applications of the placebo effect so we can learn to use our expectation of a particular outcome to alter our internal state and external reality. Dr. Dispenza is the author of You Are the Placebo, Making Your Mind Matter. He lectures about the functions of the human brain and teaches people how to reprogram their thinking. Welcome, Dr. Dispenza. Thanks for joining us today.
1: Oh, thank you, Joan. I'm happy to be with you.
3: Dr. Dispenza, most of us have at one time or another heard of the placebo effect, and it's usually in relationship to a drug study. What does the placebo effect actually mean?
1: Well, if you give someone a sugar pill, a saline injection, or perform some type of fake procedure, a certain percentage of those people will accept, believe, and surrender that they're actually getting the real treatment without any analysis. And those people will begin to make their own pharmacy of chemicals that match the exact chemical or treatment that they think they're taking, and their body will heal by thought alone. So my thought was, once you understand the science of how the placebo works, if you can begin to demystify it and you can see what's happening in the brain, you can understand the new science of neuroplasticity and epigenetics, is it possible, then, that to take away that external substance and teach people to heal by the same principles, by thought alone, and begin to make their own internal changes instead of relying on something outside of them?
3: So, Dr. Joe, what is it that's actually happening in the brain? I heard someone tell me a story that cancer patients who were given saline, believing that they were being given chemotherapy, actually started to exhibit chemo side effects. They lost their hair. They were nauseous. They literally made themselves sick without having one drop of chemo. And I think this is fascinating. So what is actually occurring within the brain?
1: Well, there's there's also what's called the nocebo, which is <clears throat> when you give someone an inert substance, Joan, like, say, chemotherapy, if you begin to accept the particular suggestion, the thought, that you'll get side effects from that that uh, placebo. And what's happening in your brain is you begin to select an image in your mind, an image of your in your mind based on a past experience. And if you can accept that thought, frontal lobe creates a picture. And if you accept that thought and you begin to emotionally embrace or think about how it's going to feel, your limbic brain begins to make a, a particular blend of neuropeptides that begin to signal the body for it to begin to feel exactly the way it was just thinking. So when you combine a clear intention, a thought, with an emotion, you create what we call a state of being. Thoughts are the language of the brain and feelings are the language of the body. And how we think and how we feel creates a state of being. So in those cases, your body is your unconscious mind. It does not know the difference between an actual experience in your life that creates an emotion and an emotion that you fabricate by thought alone. So your body in that moment is believing that it's in that future experience in the present moment, and it is that particular blend of thought and feeling that begins to program the autonomic nervous system to begin to respond to a thought. So there have been so many countless cases of Uh, anticipatory nausea from say, for example, chemotherapy, 40 to 50% of patients that, that are on their way to their first chemotherapy treatment, that are told that they're going to get nauseous after their treatment, get nauseous on their drive to their first chemotherapy treatment in anticipation of the outcome. So they're selecting that thought, they're emotionally embracing it, and it's their autonomic nervous system that begins to make them nauseous. So my question is, and 40 to 50% of those people can get nauseous in the expectation of some worse thing that could happen to them. Can 50% of people get healthy on their drive to work in expectation of something good happening to them?
3: So, Dr. Joe, if this is something that's occurring and we're not even aware of, of our beliefs that we're doing this to ourselves, how do we turn it around and accomplish what you're saying to turn it into a positive?
1: Well, um, that's a great question and that's really what the book is about. Um, I think that there's a deprogramming process that has to take place, Joan, because uh, so many people think they need a, a flu shot because they're told that um, you know, germs are what create flus and, and they're expecting that outcome. So there's a deprogramming process that has to take place. And by the same means, that means that we have to examine our very beliefs that we have about the nature of reality. And a belief is just a thought you keep thinking over and over again until you hardwire it in your brain. And since beliefs are based on past experiences and experiences stamp neurological networks into place, and the end product of experiences is called emotions, so then the very boundaries of our beliefs have to do with how we feel. So if how you think and how you feel creates a state of being and you keep thinking and feeling in the same way, redundancy of that cycle conditions the body to become the mind of that particular state. Once the body is the mind, it's a habit, it's a subconscious program. So beliefs are extended states of being, and if you keep thinking and feeling that way, they become unconscious or subconscious states of being. Most people don't even know that they believe certain things. They just accept them because it's part of their very visceral physiology. So in order to change a belief or perception about yourself and your life, you have to make a decision with such firm intention that the amplitude of that decision carries a level of energy that's greater than the hardwired programs in your brain and the emotional addictions in your body. And your body literally has to respond to a new mind. In other words, the choice that you make becomes an experience that you never forget. As an example, uh, the person who moves into a state of religious ecstasy in the deep south in the United States and drinks strychnine and has no biological effects, or the mother whose child who's caught under the the car and the mother lifts the car and pulls the child out. The mother doesn't say, geez I ate carbohydrates yesterday and I hadn't worked out in two weeks. The, 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 the preacher doesn't say, geez I wonder if I'm going to be poisoned today, I don't know if I'm going to live or I'm going to die. Their decision is final and the energy of that decision, energy is the epiphenomenon of matter. So when we begin to change our energy the body begins to respond and that's the moment we begin to rewrite the program. That's the moment The bodies and brain are no longer living in the past in the present it's the moment the body is living in the future in the present and it's that kind of intensity it's that kind of passion it's that kind of willfulness that begins to change the very nature of our beliefs
3: joe for the person and and i i'm sure you know this type of person as well as i do who is innately a negative type of person who really in, it subconsciously believes that the worst will happen. And then that person decides they, they listen to what you're saying and, and what we do on the show and they decide that they want to make changes. So they start to tell themselves, Oh, I'll be happy or, Oh, you know, whatever it is they're telling themselves, but internally they still have that negative belief at the core. How do they take that first step to really making the deep changes that are necessary?
1: Oh, this is a really great question because my work, and I'm certain that your work, is just not about positive thinking because um, the way we think and feel, as we were talking earlier, uh, and uh, think and feel and feel and think, it's that cycle, that loop then creates what we call our personalized state of being, our personality. So if a person has had some really rough situations in their past, and those past experiences create certain emotions, and those emotions drive certain thoughts and those thoughts reaffirm those emotional states, then for the most part, their brain and body are literally living in the past because the body is the unconscious mind living by the same emotion, believes it's in the same past experience 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. The body literally is in the past. And if you condition the body to become the mind, then the body actually believes it's physiologically in the past. So we can't create a new future by living in the past, so the person who's going to think positively and start changing their thoughts like I'm thinking positively. It doesn't work because 95% of who we are by the time we're 35 years old is a set of memorized behaviors, emotional reactions, beliefs, perceptions, and attitudes that function like a subconscious computer program, so now the person is going to think positively with the 5% of their conscious mind, but for the most part, they've memorized negativity for the last 35 years. That's mind and body in opposition, or they're going to create their dream board, and they're going to have the pictures of their new car and their new house and a new relationship, but they feel unworthy. Well, they program themselves that way. So mind and body are in the p- opposition. We have to recondition the body to a new mind. So the process of change then, true transformation and true change, what separates the conscious mind from the subconscious mind is the analytical mind. And... The whole purpose of the model that we use in the book about meditation, meditation, its purpose is to get beyond the analytical mind and to drop into those layers where those programs can exist so we can make true change. So the person who's crossing the river of change, the first thing they have to look at is they have to become conscious of their unconscious thoughts. Write them down. List the thoughts that are slipping by your awareness that you believe every day, but they're not true. You just believe them. What behaviors and habits, what do you say out of your mouth that you want to change? Those are um, programs. They're habits. Become conscious of your automatic uh, behaviors and habits. And look at the emotions that you manage every day and live by every day and decide if those emotions actually belong in your future. I think most people, you know, the concept is your personality creates your personal reality. That's it. And your personality is made up of how you think, how you act, and how you feel. So the present personality who's listening created the present personal reality called a life, which means if you want to create a new personal reality, you have to change your personality. You've got to begin to think about what you're thinking about and change it. Begin to notice how you're acting and behaving and alter that. And then begin to look at the emotions that keep you anchored to the past and start creating some elevated emotions. As an example, you know most people try to create a new personal reality as the same personality, and it doesn't work. For example, if you want to be wealthy, A wealthy person will never feel lack, so you can't bring the emotion of lack into your future. A wealthy person doesn't complain about money because they have enough of it. So then you have to begin to change your very thoughts, behaviors, and emotions, and you have to do it enough times that you begin to create a new habit of thought, a new habit of action, and a new elevated emotion. And the new science of neuroplasticity and epigenetics shows that it's absolutely possible to literally change your state of being.
3: Joe, very quickly before we run out of time, a new study showed that irritable bowel syndrome patients were able to dramatically improve their symptoms by taking placebos, but the interesting part is they knew that they were taking the placebo. How is that possible?
1: Well, it's very interesting because suggestibility, our level of suggestion, there's a certain percentage of people that accept suggestions without any analysis. Now, the greater the analytical mind, the less suggestibility we have. So a certain percentage of people, even though they know that it's the placebo, are still expecting and hoping with excitement that even though the placebo, it's a placebo, that they're on some level doing something different and it'll work. And that's how powerful the subconscious and the autonomic nervous system is. And, 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 and that's just the beginning because so many people then, once they understand that somebody else has been healed from a therapy or a treatment, or even understand that it is the placebo, those people are hopeful just because they begin to think differently. They begin to act differently. They begin to uh, change their internal chemistry, to change their state of being. And, and that it, that process, that simple process, we can do on the drive to work. And the point is, is that if, if you know it's the placebo, uh, then in your life, maybe it's important enough that you can change your state of being by thought alone. Then affirmation then that you don't need some substance in order to do it they accepted it without any substance at all even knowingly that it wasn't even uh, uh, it was an inert substance
3: the book is you are the placebo making your mind matter by dr joe dispenza joe thank you so much for joining us today to talk about the power of the mind most people really don't understand the power that they have within and this information that you presented is truly life-changing so i hope that our listeners will take the time to follow up and learn more if you'd like to learn more about the topic or about Dr. Joe Dispenza, you can visit his website, drjoedispenza.com. That's D-I-S-P-E-N-Z-A dot com. Again, Joe, thank you for being here.
1: Oh, I appreciate it, John. Thank you.
3: This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
4: Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path, personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com.
2: Hi, Dr. Hey, Freelancer. Hi there, Business Owner. Today's world has so many acronyms. As leaders called upon to speak to our teams, to the public, and to our patients and clients, we must be very careful about the choice of acronyms that we use. If folks don't understand our acronyms like ROI, EBITDA, EMR, CRM, FTCPA, etc., then our messages are missing the target. This is Vito Mazu with Kinum.com, and today I want to share two powerful and positive acronyms, Naruka and NAOP. In our professional careers, when we are awarded preferred status by a particular person or organization, it's a positive idea to share that with our potential clients. I'm delighted to share a proud moment about NARUCA, the Northeast Regional Urgent Care Association, and NAOP, the National Association of Occupational Health Professionals, two outstanding medical organizations. We are thrilled to announce that Kinnam, Inc. has just been honored with preferred vendor status by both of these outstanding medical entities. They represent two of the fastest-growing segments in medicine. Kinnam will be helping them with cash flow management services. We're very grateful for this recognition and would love to tell you more about it. So call me at 800-850-5110.
3: live a happy, productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our coach on-call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Allison Carmen, a business consultant, life coach, and author of The Gift of Maybe, Offering Hope and Possibility in Uncertain Times. Allison's podcast, 10 Minutes to Less Suffering, provides simple tools to reduce daily stress and worry. Allison is here today to discuss why expectations can be a source of suffering. Welcome, Allison. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Joan. Allison, when we expect things to happen and they don't, we can feel disappointed. And and I know this firsthand. I'm someone who really does expect a lot from other people. And there's a saying that goes, if you don't expect anything, you can't get hurt. Do you believe the expectations that we hold can have a negative impact on how we live our life? Absolutely. I mean, when you think about it, expectations are our way to deal with
4: uncertainty because deep down, a lot of us are afraid that we're not okay. So we write stories about what needs to happen for us to feel safe. And that's what expectations are. We hold them and they make us feel safe, but they're really just a story. And the trickiest thing about expectations is we don't realize that we think that expectations are making us feel better, but really they create so much dissatisfaction in our lives. And I can even just remember a few weeks back, I took my parents to a Je- my favorite Japanese restaurant, and I was so excited. And the minute we walked in, my mother looked around, and the place was a little shabby, and she didn't like where she was sitting. And because it wasn't what she expected, because she thought to herself, oh, Allison's taking me to her favorite restaurant, because it didn't look the way that she thought it was going to look, and because the table wasn't where she thought it was going to be, the dissatisfaction kicked in. And as we were eating the food, she was never able to let go of that initial reaction to the restaurant. And that's what happens. Because things are not happening the way we thought, we sit in this satisfaction. And what it really does is it steals the moment. And that's the most poignant thing about expectations is because we're so disappointed we can't see what's in front of us. There could be a miracle happening in front of us and we wouldn't know it. And it's interesting if you speak to people who have had great loss in their lives. They're very interesting because they see how their expectations told that moment and they have these feelings if I could just go back and do it again and we don't want to live like that. The best way to live is to free ourselves and to come into each moment and allow ourselves to see the miracle of the moment and that's present living and present living is poignant living, it's deep living and then when we let go of those expectations, we could have an expansive view of all that's happening in our lives. But another thing expectation does, the third thing is that it also creates broken ideas. And that's something we all also need to look at because you could have a business. And if you have this expectation that you were going to make all this money, 200000 $300,000, and it's only making $50,000, if it's a broken idea, what's going to happen is you're not going to be able to see the real success of your business because you're going to be so busy saying, I should have made that kind of money, that you won't be able to look at what you have and you won't be able to use it as a springboard to move forward. And I also find sometimes, even in broken relationships, people get so caught on the idea of what they thought they would have that sometimes they don't even have a broken heart. It's just a broken idea of how you thought life would be. And when we carry these broken ideas, We can't move forward. We can't live in an expansive way. So what expectations do is they create a story that we think is going to keep us safe. But what they really do is they steal the moment and they don't allow us to see what's really happening in our lives.
3: I can recall a conversation that I had with you recently. And in it, I was sharing a story about something that happened in the past. And I said the words to you, so-and-so should have. And before I even finished the sentence, you stopped me and you said, get rid of the should. So- How can we learn to expect less? Do you have a technique that you can offer to help us? Yes, I have
4: three steps that I use in my own life and with my clients to try to lessen expectations. And the first one is always awareness. And I find that if I'm aware of my expectations, I'm able to let them go. Because if you think about it, if you could start every day, And say, I'm not going to expect anything today. I'm not going to expect what this restaurant is going to be like. I'm not going to expect what my relationship with my friend is going to be like. I'm going to have no expectation for what my workday is going to be like. We're not going to constantly be disappointed because we're going to say, I'm just going to be open. I don't know what's going to happen. And it's not like you're giving up your likes and your dislikes. But because you lessen those expectations, you're going to be so present that whatever comes your way, you're going to enjoy And you're going to be open, but you're also going to see so many more possibilities in your life because you don't realize expectations shut us down. It's a limited view of all that can be. And the minute we let it go, we are so available for new possibilities. We are so available for what uncertainty can give us. It's almost like we're walking around with more strength and more trust for ourselves because we're allowing life to unfold and we're saying, I'm going to be so present willing and able to handle what comes my way. And I'm going to be willing to pursue my goals in such an open way that you're going to allow more things to happen for yourself. Another reason why they steal our joy is because they make us think the life we have is always going to be there. We think our husband's always going to be there. Our friends are always going to be there. Our job is always going to be there. And so we stop seeing the miracles because we think life is always going to be a certain way. And I don't say this to upset people. I say it that It's so sacred every moment of our lives. So if we're able to see the sacredness and let go of how we think it's always going to be, that's when the preciousness comes in. That's when we notice the flowers. We notice the trees. We feel the love that we share with someone because it's so precious because we don't know how long it'll be there and if it'll always be there. So it's not that we live in more fear, but we live in more gratitude and appreciation. And I also just want to go back to this idea of broken ideas. That the expectation makes us hold on to things in our lives that are really not working. And that's what I call the broken idea. It's that we're so sure our lives should have been a certain way that we can't let it go and see what it is today. And life will always change. And things we thought we'd have in our lives, sometimes we don't. And businesses we thought we'd have and partners we thought we'd have, everything always changes. And so we have to be able to let go of the life we thought we were going to have to really embrace the life that's in front of us and to also embrace what could possibly be. So you need to ask yourself, is what's happening in my life real or it's just a broken idea of how I thought it should be? And if we could let go of these ideas and the past and how we thought it could be and the expectations, we will show up so open to have the life that we really want to have. And that's the most important thing. If we could be present, we could be open and we could look into the unknown and say, I'm still okay, and I can handle what's happening. I don't need to expect things. I just need to be open and have faith in myself that no no matter what happens, I will still be okay, and life is filled with hope and possibility.
3: Can you apply the concept of maybe to eliminating expectations?
4: Absolutely, because deep down, we create these expectations because we're afraid that we won't be okay. That's the biggest fear that we're not safe, that we're not well, that we can't have success. So what this idea of maybe does, it just allows us to cast doubt on our biggest fear. So for me, when a big disappointment happens, when I see I have a broken idea, the first thing that I will say to myself is maybe I'm still okay, maybe everything is still okay, maybe what's happening is good, maybe things will get better. So what it does, it just provides hope and allows me to let go of everything I thought I knew and to realize that just because I don't know doesn't mean that things are not gonna be okay. And just because I don't know doesn't mean that that success is not around the corner. Everything we don't know is not our enemy and maybe reminds us of that, maybe allows us to let go of the expectations and to look within ourselves and to look outside of ourselves and know it's all a big maybe, but that is hopeful and that is filled with new possibilities and new opportunities. For our life moving forward.
3: Allison, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about Allison and her work, or if you'd like to listen to her podcast, 10 Minutes to Less Suffering, you can visit her website, AllisonCarmen.com. And as always, to hear more from Allison, you can visit our website, slash Allison. We'll be right back. Recently, I was flipping through a toy catalog, shopping for a gift for a French child when I stumbled upon an item that had brought hours of enjoyment to my children. It's a square box that has different shapes cut out into each side with matching pieces. The goal of the toy is for children to fit each piece into its corresponding hole, thus learning to recognize shapes and how to fit like things together. My boy spent hours placing the various shapes into their respective holes. Most times, the pieces fit together with ease, but on occasion, they would work tirelessly trying to make the wrong piece fit into the wrong hole. An oval and a circle, a square and a triangle, a rectangle in a square. As I reminisced about them sitting on the floor working at this task, I began to think about how this activity mimics what we do throughout our life, work, to make the pieces fit. Hi, this is Joan Herman, here with a lesson learned while earning my Ph.D. in life. Sometimes our choices fit perfectly, but other times, no matter how much energy we expend, they just don't fit. How many times have you been in a friendship or romance that didn't work out? In most situations when the breakup occurred, anger, heartbreak, and disappointment soon followed, then blame. Someone must be at fault. Someone was wrong. You tried so hard, so why couldn't it survive? Instead of being consumed with anger and resentment, Did you ever stop and think that maybe, just maybe, it was simply a wrong fit and that no one is to blame? Like the pieces in the toy, each of us has an individual design derived from life experiences. We are each as unique as a circle, square, triangle, or octagon. When we make the right match, everything fits perfectly. But when we have the wrong pieces, it doesn't work, no matter how hard we push or on what angle. It would be ridiculous to say something is wrong with the circle because it didn't fit in the square. We recognize the shapes as being different, so why do we make those claims about people? Why do we assign blame to a person and then spend the rest of our life being angry and resentful, thinking about what could have been? Perhaps a new perspective would be to view each of us as the pieces of the toy, unique with our own characteristics, perfect in our design, but not always a fit, no matter how hard we try to squeeze it together and how much we want it. Perhaps looking at life experiences in this way may make it easier to let go and stop assigning blame. It may enable us to forgive and move forward. So the next time you experience the loss of a valued relationship, rather than being consumed with anger and bitterness, just release it. Try to view yourself and the other person as shapes, different from each other, but with their own purpose, beauty, and value. Perfect in their individuality, but they just don't fit. Thanks for spending these minutes with me. For more information and empowering tools, visit JoanHerman.com.
2: This is W.N.Y.A. Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City.
3: To Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Joining us today is Eileen Lashinsky, the founder and creator of Fine Body Freedom, a program developed for women who want to change their relationship with their bodies. For over three decades, Eileen battled with her own issues with body image, weight, and her relationship with food. After trying every diet on the market, she realized that the answers to her struggles were were right inside her body. Since then, Eileen has been working with women to guide them to discover their own innate body wisdom and to find body freedom. Welcome, Eileen. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: I'm so glad to be here, Joan.
3: Thank you. Eileen, you recently published a book, Reflections of a Fat Girl, Wisdom Lost and Found from Growing Up Overweight. Can you tell us a little bit about how this book came about?
0: Yes, I can. And I have to say, I'm so excited to be able to talk to you and to others about the book. Um, But I will tell you that even though I'm so excited about the book, um, it was my husband actually who said, Eileen, you have to put your writing into a book form. And when I was in private practice in upstate New York um, for nine years, uh, for seven of those years, I wrote a monthly article for Jill magazine, which was published by our local newspaper. And every month I had a column and every month I would write about women's issues, about anything and everything having to do with women, whether it was a national holiday, a political event or Um, something I might have seen on TV or read in the newspaper that would be of interest to women. And I wrote article after article after article. And my husband at some point said, Eileen, you have to put these into a book. And I said, no, I don't want to do it. And I don't think they belong in a book. And he said, Eileen, you have to do this. And then my marketing guru came along and basically said the same thing. So guess what? Now we have a book. So Eileen, what does this
3: title represent? What are the main themes that you teach?
0: So the title represents, I'll start with that one, Joan. Um, The title represents the fact that by the time I was uh, five years old, I was fat. I was a fat child. And I was an adolescent, and I was in a young adult and into mid-adulthood, swinging from um, uh, binge eating to uh, highly restrictive eating. And my weight went back and forth, and my emotional self went back and forth. And so the title represents the fact that uh, for so much of my life, and even in moments now, the lens that I looked at the world through was from this fat girl perspective. And all of the wounds and um, and the scarring, basically, that I uh, accumulated over the years because of the messages I received when I was a fat child, and beyond that. So the title is very, very representative of the lens, not only um, that I experienced the world through, but also that I wrote many or all of the articles from. And so what are the main themes that you teach? Um, The main themes in the book, well, what I did was I took all of the articles, and and I took them and I categorized them. And there is a chapter on body image. There is a chapter on innate body wisdom. There is a chapter on uh, hunger and why we eat, because many of us women know uh, that we don't simply eat because we're hungry. Um, or if we're hungry, we might not be hungry for food. We might be hungry for something else, but we eat anyway. And um, another theme in the book is about self-love. So what what do the articles teach? What do I teach through the articles? That basically we have to go within and learn about our own innate body wisdom. We have to learn about what will work for us. Because what will work for me, what has worked for me, doesn't necessarily work for somebody else as that person might try to duplicate it. That we all have to tweak whatever it is, for example, that I might say in the articles and say, okay, I'm going to try this out, but if this doesn't work, I can learn how to do this, how to tweak it as long as I'm paying attention to my innate body wisdom and responding accordingly. So we have to learn the language of our bodies, and that's also a message in the book. So we learn the language our bodies speak. That's step one, and, of course, step two is for us to respond accordingly.
3: Most women have been programmed to believe that we are inherently flawed, which leads us then to try diet after diet, extreme exercise programs, or even body reshaping surgeries. So let's talk a little bit about your approach and why it's different. How do you help women break these patterns? Well, firstly,
0: Joan, first and foremost, I've lived this. So I have uh, a lot of experience Uh, working on how to shift my perception of me. And then that led to helping other women shift their perceptions of themselves. I've lived this so I know the traps. I know what we can fall into and I know how uh, enticing and addicting it is to think about, okay, if I try this new diet or this new exercise program, or boy, does that surgery sound like I can have a flat belly in 30 minutes. I understand all of that. And to be honest with you, some of those things I had tried earlier in my life. So I created this program, Find Body Freedom, which is an online program. It's a modular program that deals with body image, with our relationship, with our weight and the scale, with our relationship with food with the central focus on intuitive eating or attuned eating. And I created this module per, modular program so that women all over the country and all over the world could have access to another perspective so that we can step out of our programming that we're now in. And, and I would like to add uh, this also, that I shine light on some of the big misconceptions that we've believed over time, such as that if I am um, a size 8, some people say a size 8, some people say if you are over a size 8, that means you're overweight. And that's just not true. But these are some of the myths conceptions that I help women see.
3: Eileen, in about 30 seconds or less, if you could sum it up, what is the takeaway from what you teach?
0: Readers will take away my absolute love and respect for women and my hope and dream for more body positivity and body diversity depicted in mainstream media. We need more of that so that we can see ourselves when we look at TV or open up a magazine or a newspaper. And that's just not the case these days.
3: Eileen, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about the book or Eileen and her work, you can visit findbodyfreedom.com. Again, that's findbodyfreedom.com. Or as always, you can hear more from Eileen by visiting our website, cyacyl.com Eileen. We'll be right back.
5: Do you make mistakes? What do you say to yourself when you do? Do you say, I'm so stupid, or I'm not good enough? Hi, I'm Gail Gruenberg, Chief Executive Organizer of Let's Get Organized. We specialize in serving clients who are chronically disorganized, helping them change their lives, as well as organize their homes and offices. We humans excel at beating ourselves up. If we listen to how we talk to ourselves, the words we say, and the tone we use, we would cringe if we overheard someone speaking that way to someone else. We don't even realize we're doing it, and the effect that it has on our mind Body and spirit. Consider these automatic negative thoughts about yourself as poison. Even one tiny drop of a poisonous negative thought takes hold and spreads like lightning, infusing every part of your body with its toxicity. You become negativity incarnate. Now consider catching yourself having those negative thoughts, asking yourself if they are true, and consciously turning them into automatic positive thoughts, reminding yourself that you are a worthwhile person with value, strengths, and talents your body would relax, your mind would clear, creating neural pathways that allow for creative thinking and possibility. Your brain would literally change and so would your life. I'm Gail Gruenberg with Let's Get Organized, working with you on site or virtually. We help you make space for blessings. Call us at 201-613-2733 or visit our website at lgorganized.com.
6: When you're having a conversation in relationship and it's somewhat controversial, you probably want to be heard and be right. Quite often that's what we want. And so we're maybe a little defensive, but is that right? Or do we want a result? The result being we'd like to get along. Hi, I'm Lindsay Levinson, Quality for Life Coaching. And they are two different things. Getting along versus being heard and being right. See, because being heard and right is our defense. then that connects to our ego. But ego's not really going to get you that far. If you want a result, then you're going to want to work with humility and truth. So if you've got a difference of opinion, I mean, for me, I'll quickly look for a reason to say I'm sorry. And it has to be true. If I don't know what I've done yet, then I will say, I'm sorry you're hurting. I've done something wrong here because you're hurting, but let's talk further so we can figure this out. And you don't want to talk at someone by saying you this and you that because people just shut their ears. You want to use words like we and use words like experience. I'm having this experience. I know your experience is different. There isn't a right or wrong. There's just different experiences going on here. So we just need to talk it through and land somewhere that feels really good for both of us. So you want to do a lot of that non-heated conversation so that you can both feel good, but nobody is charging at another person. It's not being heard and right. It's just working toward the positive result. Lindsay Levinson, qualityforlifecoaching.com. Look me up. I'd love to talk to you, help you in any way I might be
3: able to you've put your heart and soul into writing a book you've made a substantial financial investment in getting the project done and you have a beautiful publication with your name on the cover so how do you reach your potential readers introducing the change your attitude change your life book club a resource guide created for books that change lives A book featured gets recognized. Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life includes the work of some of the most inspirational and influential authors in the world. Shouldn't you be there too? Let's get started. For more information, visit cyacyl.com slash book club. Joining me today is Dr. Jennifer Weider, co-author of the book, Got Teens, The Dr. Mom's Guide to Sexuality, Social Media, and Other Adolescent Realities. Welcome, Dr. Wider. Thanks for joining us today.
7: Thanks for having me, Joan.
3: Dr. Wider, your book, Got Teens, deals with a variety of issues that parents face today, and it serves as a guide to help us get through it. So what would you say, in writing this book, have you found are some of the major issues that kids face today that we didn't have to deal with growing up?
7: I I think it's a good question you know I think when we look at some of the different statistics of what the kids are dealing with um, you know on the whole children are hitting puberty both boys and girls slightly earlier than they were when we were kids Um, and that has ramifications down the line just from a medical and health standpoint and kids really need to know that the changes that they're experiencing from a physical standpoint are, are, are normal. You know, oftentimes children think that they're the only ones going through these bodily changes and that's why it's so important for parents to be aware of what their child may be experiencing so they can let them know that these are normal changes that everybody goes through and sometimes someone will go through it earlier than others or later than others, but eventually everybody catches up. So it's important that they don't feel ashamed or embarrassed, and that's something that needs to be instilled by the parent. I think some of the bigger challenges I think the kids are facing today is that is living in this hypersexualized society where we're bombarded with these sexual images, and it has an effect on both boys and girls of what our expectations are, how what we think our self worth is. That's a challenge for kids, and I think the biggest challenge and the biggest change from when I was growing up is social media, without a doubt, is the is you know the the rapid exchange of information the quick evolving apps that parents feel like they have no idea what's going on in their child's life. Oftentimes, the child knows much more about social media than the parent, and it's very difficult to keep up with that. So I think that presents a challenge as well.
3: And you just mentioned that children are reaching puberty earlier than before. And when you look at some of these kids, we tend to think that they're older than they are, but they're really not emotionally prepared to handle a lot of these challenges. And why do you think that kids are physically maturing
7: earlier? You know, I think this is a big question mark. Um, there are a lot of hypotheses of why kids are reaching puberty earlier. I think if we look at our food supply, I think the hormones and the antibiotics that are used in some of the dairy and the poultry in our, in our country, without a doubt, have played a role. I also think we have an obesity epidemic in our country, and what we see is that kids that are overweight or obese may be hitting puberty slightly earlier than they used to, and that definitely plays a role. And there's a genetic link too, so it's multifactorial, without a doubt. But it's true. I think girls on the whole are hitting puberty about six months to a year earlier than they used to. And the same is true with boys.
3: Doctor, let's talk briefly about a few of the changes parents can expect. The first thing, and I noticed this with my boys, is moodiness. I mean, one minute they're happy and they're smiling and, and it's almost like they are you flick on a light switch and the next it, it's like, who is this person? They're moody.
7: What is going <laughs> I <know>. on? <laughs> I know. You know, it's so funny, Joan. I think we all experience that. You're once, you know, angelic child that you remember holding hands with watching, you know, Dora the Explorer turns into a werewolf <laughs> overnight and you don't know why. And their moods can change rapidly in the course of the day. The reason is all of the changes that our bodies are experiencing are hormonal changes. You know, your body has hormonal fluctuations and it has an effect on your body from a physical standpoint, but it affects your mind also. So these hormones that are raging and fluctuating in our child's bodies, whether it's a boy or a girl, has an effect on their mood and their emotional stability. And that's why we see these mood swings. What do you advise parents do to deal with this? I think it's important to be there you know it's hard to be the receiving end of a child that's barking at you or or saying things that are disrespectful I don't I don't think that a parent needs to accept that I think that you need to instill your values and let your child know how you want to be spoken to and what the proper way to have a discussion and to have you know interpersonal connection is but but also to know and file in the back of your head that these changes are temporary that sometimes they're out of the control of your child and they may be reacting you know, overly sensitive or they may be a little bit more angry than normal and just to know that it's part of puberty and you went through it too and just to give them a little room to experience the feelings they may be having.
3: Now doctor, what about skin changes? Most kids deal with acne. Some experience it worse than others, and so what are possible causes and can it be prevented?
7: Well, you know, I think acne unfortunately is one of those things that's a universal experience during puberty. We, you know, with the, the surge of hormones, we also have an increase in sebum or oil production in our body, which makes our skin more prone to, to colonize bacteria or to have an outbreak of acne. At the same time, you know, you see changes in the hair and, and on other areas the body where our sweat glands are changing and we start to have body odor. Unfortunately, not so easily prevented. There is treatment for a child that may be having some serious or cystic acne. You know, sometimes we see our kids have terrible acne, and at that point, it's time to bring them to a dermatologist. But for the most part, it's going to be cyclical, and it's going to die down after the pubertal changes, but kids are going to experience acne, unfortunately. One of the things
3: I noticed with my boys, it's their sleep patterns seem to change, where they used to go to sleep earlier and get eight hours sleep and wake up earlier. It seems like now they can't fall asleep until midnight, one or two o'clock. Is that a normal rhythm that happens during the teenage yeah. years, and is it okay
7: Well, you know what, that's such a good question. I think it is okay. It is normal. Our kids' biological clock, you know, it shifts. So we see in puberty and adolescence, our children may not be so tired, like at 9 o'clock or 8 o'clock as they used to, and they may go to bed at 10 or 11. The problem is the schools haven't caught up. So a lot of our kids that are going to bed at 11 o'clock are also waking up at 7 or 6, and it really isn't enough sleep for them. You know, they really need a solid 10 to 11 hours of sleep at their age because their body is growing and changing. And so unfortunately, a lot of our kids in this time period during puberty and adolescence are sleep deprived, which also can exacerbate mood swings and some of the other emotional fallout from puberty.
3: The book is Got Teens? The Dr. Mom's Guide to Sexuality, Social Media, and Other Adolescent Realities. If you'd like more information, you can visit Dr. Wider's website, drwider.com, and that's W-I-D-E-R.com. Doctor, thank you so much for being here with us today. I hope our listeners take away all of this important message, but if nothing else, just remember that this is temporary and it won't last forever. So thank you for being
7: here. (laughs) Joan, thanks so much for having me.
3: You've put your heart and soul into writing a book, you've made a substantial financial investment in getting the project done, and you have a beautiful publication with your name on the cover. So, how do you reach your potential readers? Introducing the Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life Book Club, a resource guide created for books that change lives. A book featured gets recognized. Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life includes the work of some of the most inspirational and influential authors in the world. Shouldn't you be there too? Let's get started. For more information, visit cyacyl.com bookclub book club. I want to be riding my bike. But at this moment, he's fighting leukemia.
5: St. Jude Children's Research Hospital is saving lives with pioneering research and care.
0: And we'll never have to pay St. Jude for anything.
5: Please take a moment and visit stjude.org today.
3: Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative change your attitude change your life we believe that knowledge is power take what you've learned apply it and live your best life now